Romans 5, verse 6. We're going to go all the way to verse 11, and we will travel verse by verse by verse simply through these rich, rich verses. Before we jump in, let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would now come by your Holy Spirit and help us. Father, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is supernatural. It is not just a book. It is a book that you gave us as a love letter. 66 books in total, all telling one story of what you did to save a people to forgive a people, to call a people out of the world and into light, to populate a new heaven and a new earth. Father, we pray that tonight as we jump into Romans 5, 6 through 11, you would help us by your spirit, help us to understand these deep concepts, these deep words that you've given us through your servant, Paul. I pray that we would have gripping attention by your spirit and that we would be helped tonight. Please come and help us. May the gospel be clear. And would it be powerful to save? In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. All right, I'm going to start by reading the entirety of verses 6 through 11, and then we'll go verse by verse by verse, and we'll break it up together. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. A rich text. Let's start with verse 6. Now remember, last week we ended on hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the hope is the hope in the promises of God, specifically the gospel of God that saves. And that hope that we put in God and God's word and God's gospel will not disappoint because God is faithful to do what he said he would do to fulfill his promises. And the, the word that Eddie gave us while we were singing there, where he said, God is faithful. It's about God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. This is what verse six is all about. For at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Not the righteous, not the well-meaning, not the better than everyone else in comparison. No, ungodly. Friends, you must confess your ungodliness or you're not one whom Jesus died for. So what is the requirement in verse six to be saved? You need to be ungodly. Because, as Paul Tripp said, you cannot confess what you don't see. And you cannot repent of what you cannot confess. And you can't exercise faith in the promise of God, specifically the gospel, if you don't repent. So it all depends on you seeing first that you are ungodly. The first step to salvation is you realizing you are not right before God. He is actually angry at you in your sin. This is what verse 9 is about. Look, much more shall we be saved by him, the him is Jesus, from the wrath of God. What are we saved from when we say, are you saved? Have you been saved? What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. God is angry at people. He's angry at sin. When we say he is holy, that means that he, by definition, must 
take issue with sin. The problem is we are sinners and we love sin. And as I've said before, it's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We have sin on the inside and it expresses itself through individual sins. Lying, stealing, coveting, lusting, outbursts of anger and the like. And so we need to be Verse six, ungodly. And if you're just honest with yourself, I don't think it needs much convincing. I really don't. I don't think I need to break out the 10 commandments and go one by one by one and measure you know, your righteousness by the 10 commandments. All I need to do is break out the top one and the second one. When Jesus was asked, you, you sum down the 613 commands in the Bible, what is the greatest? What was Jesus' answer? Love the Lord your God with all, all, your heart, that's the core of your being, your soul, your immaterial self, your heart, your soul, your mind, all of your thinking, and strength, your bodily strength. How you doing? How are you doing with loving God with all of you, all of your being, your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How are you doing? If you're not doing it with all of your might, then by definition, you are ungodly. If this is the greatest command, is to love God, and you are failing, you failed at the first one. The second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know that you love yourself because you care for yourself and you feed yourself and you, you take rest for yourself and you do what pleasures you. You know, not everybody likes to go white water rafting, but some of us do. Not everyone likes to go paintballing, but some of us do. Not everybody likes to read books, but some of us do. Not everybody likes to relax and watch, uh, perhaps binge watch a show, but some of us do. So you know how to take care of you. How are you doing taking care of your neighbor in the same way? And then you might ask, who's my neighbor? Anyone in your path. Any image bearer of God. Now, those two commands crush anyone who tries to stand up under them. And the good news, friends, is when Jesus stood under those two commands, he upheld them by his strength. He loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He did love his neighbor as himself, but then he took our failure upon his shoulders and it squashed him and crushed him. And so Jesus was crushed in our place by God the Father himself. The wrath of God met Jesus the Savior and Jesus died under the wrath of God. And now God is no longer angry for those who are united to Jesus in Christ. And that's what this text is about. So that was a long introduction. Here we go. You ready? For while we were still Weak. What does this mean, weak? It literally means helpless, unable to please God by our good works. It means ungodly. We're weak. We are unable. Now, the inability that the reformers speak of, uh, we are morally unable to please God. We sometimes get confused by moral inability and we confuse it with physical inability. And so let me illustrate with being chained to a chair. This is a classic illustration. Some of you have heard it. If you were chained to a chair, like you were you know, caught by some secret service agency for tax evasion or something nefarious, and you were chained to a chair and you were told, stand up, but yet you couldn't even move, that would be physical inability. You couldn't obey the command to stand because you were physically unable. Okay, that's physical inability. The weakness of verse six is not physical inability, it's moral inability. When God says to you, turn from your sin, turn from worshiping small g gods to me, it's not that you're physically unable, it's that you're morally unable. And the reason you're morally unable is because you don't want to. You desire what does not please God, but does please you. This is what John 3.19 says. Men love darkness instead of light. And in John 1, Jesus is the light. Men love darkness instead of light. And they will not come to the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. And then John continues. Everyone who does come to the light comes and it is seen that what has been done has been done by God. Now that's good news. 
We don't want to come to the light because we love our sin. And so when God comes to you and says, what you love is offensive to me, turn from it, throw it away, confess it, and come to me for forgiveness, we stiff arm God because we love our sin. So when God says, come to me, we say, no. Why? Because we have a love affair with darkness. That's moral inability. You cannot because you will not. That's why. It's not physical. God's not stiff-arming anyone from coming to him. He calls out to everyone and says, come to me, but you must forsake your sin. You must forsake self. You must put me first. You must seek to obey my will, and you must renounce everything that is contrary to my will, and you say, no, thank you. I'll have it my way. And that's moral inability. You will not, and so you cannot. The good news of the gospel, friends, and what we're gonna see in this text here is that God overrides our moral inability. He reaches down into the darkness that we are swimming in, and he pulls us out, and we breathe spiritual air for the first time. We're alive spiritually. This is what God does to those whom he foreknew, Romans 8, 29. So the weakness here is that we are ungodly. We are unable to come to God even though we are commanded to. But God does something for us in our ungodliness. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps... Look at the though perhaps, that's a qualifier. For a good person, one would dare even to die. All right, what what Paul's doing here, I think in some sense he is comparing a righteous person with a good person, but it's not a huge comparison. A righteous person in this context is probably someone who is morally upright, not perfect before God, but a person you would look to and say, "They're they're a pretty good person, quote unquote, by human standards. One who is morally upright according to society's standards. A righteous person. No one is probably going to die as a substitute for somebody just because they're a righteous person. That's the argument. Now, a good person is somebody who does good to others and gains the favor and affection of others because of their goodness. They're recognized as being a lover of humanity. And so for that type of person, someone might just die. Perhaps, maybe, but probably not. And the idea here is that even for the best of the best, humanly speaking, hardly anyone's gonna step in for them as a substitute. Would you? Would you take their place for the death penalty? Probably not. And that's the argument. But, verse eight, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, ungodly, In that state of being, Christ died for us. See the contrast? We as human beings would not substitute ourselves for good people, quote unquote, humanly speaking. But God does so much more, he dies for the worst of the worst of the worst. And even the self-righteous, those who by society's standards are pretty good, and so they say, I'm better than other men. I really don't need God. I really don't have any sins. That sin right there is a terrible sin against God because he declares that all are ungodly and fall short of the glory of God and are in definite need of the atoning work of Jesus. And so for you to stiff arm God's only way, the only savior, that is a horrendous sin against God. You're, st- you're, you're stiff arming God for your own righteousness. That is a terrible offense to God. Friends, there are no good people. No good people. We are all ungodly, and Jesus stepped in, and while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Now, I wanna go back to verse six for just a minute, okay? Because now that you've seen the context of six through eight, Look at what Jesus did for the ungodly, for the sinner, and look at it, it says, at the right time. You see that right here? For while we were still weak, at the right time. That's a qualifier. 
The reason this is there is because God is a planning God. God is not random or capricious or unthoughtful in his decision making. Eddie alluded to this in his set, this, this, this earlier time of worship. God is so precise that he mapped everything out before the world began. Did you know that? Now, I wouldn't believe that if the Bible wasn't so clear on that. But in multiple texts throughout the Bible, God plans all reality before it takes place. One of the, one of the most clear places you could see this is in Psalm 139. And I don't want you to turn there, and I'm not going to pull it up on the screen. But David is speaking of God's glory, and he says... Every one of my days recorded in your book before it took place. And you read that and you're like, what? How can that be? Well, Eddie referenced this text and we had no communication about this text earlier. So it's God's providence that I had it in my sermon notes and he said it during the worship set. Now, Revelation 13, 7, uh, is a, uh, 7 and 8 is a very strange chapter of the Bible. It's very symbolic. People debate whether it's past tense, whether it's present tense or future tense. What's going on here in the context is a seven-headed beast arrives on the scene, and this beast is empowered by Satan himself, the dragon. He is given the ability to make war with God's people, with the saints, and it's because they will not worship the beast that the beast goes to war, empowered by Satan. Now, we're breaking in here at verse seven. That's the context. Listen to this, friends. Also, it was allowed that it is the beast. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. God gives this beast the power and the ability to conquer Christians. That's what it means. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and nation and language. God sent, if you will, a delusion that this beast would be worshipped by every people group on the planet. This beast is being worshipped by all, except Christians. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name, now listen to the qualifier, Everyone whose name has not been written, listen to this, before the foundation of the world. Where? (laughs) In the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now let me unpack that for just a second. There's a book of life and there's names written in it when? Before the foundation of the world. What's the name of the book? The lamb who was slain. Who is the lamb? Jesus Christ. He is slain before the world began. What does that mean? That means that Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, plunging the whole human race into sin, was a part of the plan. And you're like, how can that be? I would ask you the question, how can it be that there are names written in a book before anything was created? And the book is called The Lamb Slain. What was the lamb slain for? The ungodly. For their sins. To soak up the wrath of God. In other words, the cross was in view before creation, is what that says. Now, remember, we're we're examining here for just a second at the right time, Christ died. So this was planned according to this revelation text before the foundation of the world, but we see it play out specifically in the book of John by scene after scene after scene after scene. And I just want to excursion here for a couple seconds. We will go through the book of John someday. It's my favorite gospel, so I'm committed to going through it. Who knows how long Romans is going to take, but we will go through John eventually. Look at this. John 2, 4. And Jesus said to her, this is his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour. Now this is Jesus' first miracle. This is the wedding at Cana. He has not yet revealed himself to the world. He's done no miracles. The party is on and cracking and they didn't have enough wine. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. And so he replies, woman, Now, that seems disrespectful to call your mom woman. I get that, okay? When we get to John, we'll unpack what that means. I don't have time right now. But Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
Why are you putting me on the spot? (laughs) And look at his reasoning. My hour has not yet come. What hour? The hour that he would be revealed as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's not time. And yet, ironically, he then goes and does what she asks. And and I think what's going on here is that Jesus is like, I'm not going to be beholden to you anymore as my mother because in three years I'm going to be your savior, not just your son. And so the relationship mother is changing from here on out to woman. And we'll unpack that further when we get to John, I promise. But I want you to notice here, my hour, he does have an hour and he's aware of it before he starts his public ministry. Jesus knew who he was before he did any miracles. And then right after this, he fills six 30-gallon pots with water and changes them into the best wine anyone's ever had in their lives. And the host of the party drinks some of it, and he's like, wait a minute. Usually you wait till after everyone's had several cups, then you break out the cheap wine. You've done the reverse. This is strange. This is very strange. (laughs) Okay, John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, this is his brothers, his unbelieving brothers, Jude who wrote the letter of Jude, James who wrote the letter of James. They do not believe in Jesus at this point. And so he said to them, my time, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And they want him to go up to the feast of uh, booths. They want him to go to one of the Passover, I'm sorry, one of the feasts that take place in Jerusalem every year. And then just a a few verses later, seven, eight, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. And then if we skip to verse 30, now he does the same thing with Mary that he does with his brothers. After they go up to the feast, he goes up to the feast. And he shows up. And I think that in part, he's like, I'm not beholden to you, brothers. I'm not going to obey your will. Mary, Jude, James. So they were seeking to arrest him. These are the authorities in the temple. Jesus shows up to the temple for the feast, and he's public. They were seeking to arrest him. They're hostile to him. They do not like him. They want him off the scene but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Four more, and we're done with this part. John 8, 20, we're just going next chapter. Hostile crowd engaging with Jesus. These words he spoke in the treasury. He's at the temple again. And he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. John 13, 1. Now, this is right before the Passover feast or what we call the Last Supper. Okay, remember what happened? Last Supper, then to the Garden of Gethsemane, then arrested, then beaten, then on trial, and then the cross. And look what he says. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, there's what it means to depart out of the world and go back to the Father. In other words, to accomplish the mission that God sent him to accomplish, to die to satisfy the wrath of God, to die for the ungodly, to die for sinners. He knew it was time. It is time. Having loved his own, now I wanna wanna point to his own there. That's important for the next section of this text, his own. Having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them, his own, to the end. He was committed to his own, those whom the Father sent him to save, those whose names were written in that book of life before the foundation of the world called the book of the Lamb who was slain. Now, John 17, right before the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying to God the Father, and look how he opens up the prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And now Jesus, being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, he says to this crowd with pitchforks and torches and and soldiers, a mob. He says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay a hand on me, but this is your hour. 
Now's the time. This is your hour. And the power of darkness. Now, interestingly, God, the righteous, pure, holy one, works with what? The power of darkness in this scene. Because God uses sin and sinners to accomplish his will. He does it every day. And before you object to that, are you a sinner? (laughs) Does he use you? Yes, he uses sin and sinners to accomplish his will, doesn't he? Now, let's move to Ephesians 1.11. This is some application of all that I just gave you. In him, Jesus, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, we have obtained an inheritance. United to Jesus, we have an inheritance. Having been predestined, predetermined destiny, predestined according to the purpose of him, who's the him? God the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now that verse 11 there of Ephesians 1 is the most sweeping statement in almost all of scripture. Whatever happens, God works according to his will. Nothing is happening, friends, outside of God's will. Afghanistan, the 2020 election, the 2024 election, the 2028 election, if the Lord doesn't come back. Whatever's going on in your life right now, your sin that you committed today, everything, friends, going according to his will. Now, at the right time, let's go back to the text. At the right time, this is what we're discussing, and then we're gonna start moving fast after this. At the right time literally means this, that the word is kairos in the Greek. And it means a point of time or period of time with implications of being fit for something. Fit for something. And without emphasis on precise chronology. In other words, God planned this exact moment for Christ to die when? Before the foundation of the world. This applies to you, why? Because friends, what are you going through that is troubling you right now? That you either feel like God is against you or that he's punishing you for your sin or that he's dropped the ball perhaps or he can't be trusted. Friends, whatever is happening in your life, if this is true, all that I just went through, God is purposeful and whatever is going on is a part of his bigger plan. You're a part of that plan. You're being here tonight to hear this. You're watching this online. It's all a part of his plan. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now listen, friends, for us, at the right time, we get saved. In other words, we are drawn to the Father, we are given new birth, we are alive spiritually at the right time when God plans it and by whatever means he plans it. And you have a story. If you don't have a story of how God got you to himself, then perhaps he doesn't got you yet. (laughs) And maybe this message right now is a part of your story. And then you should get baptized in two weeks. (laughs) Friends, God is drawing a people to himself and you cannot resist it. The theological term is irresistible grace. When God sets his sights on you, when does that happen? Before the foundation of the world. He will draw you to himself and you cannot escape. And that sounds maybe a little harsh, but that's a beautiful truth because here's the reality of it. Your love affair with darkness, if God said, come to me and I'll deliver you from all your sin, you're like, I don't want delivered and you, you go the other way. And if God does not grab you very quickly before you run off the cliff of eternity, you will run off the cliff by your own will. Your free will will condemn you forever. And what God does is he intervenes with irresistible grace. So this irresistible grace is good. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing that we should praise God for that his undeserved, unearned, demerited kindness would seek you out, come after you, and give you the gift of repentance. Romans 2, God's kindness 
leads us to repentance. Now, we could talk more about that, but I am, I am 15 minutes to go and we just don't have time. So let's move on to verse uh, nine, since we already did seven and eight. So let's just jump to nine. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God to come. All right, now, verses eight and nine here together show something very important. This is that God will seek out and he will save his own. Now, you might not see in that text specifically his own, but let me show it to you. Look. But God shows his love for us, who's the us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified. Who are those justified from previous sermons? Those whom Jesus died for and God declares not guilty. So the justified ones are the us, the we, the us, the we. Justified by his blood, that's the cross. Much more shall we, we, be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now the reason I pointed out the us and the we here is those and only those will be saved from the wrath of God. No one else. And you say, well, well, where do you get that from? Well, there's a lot of texts in the Bible, but I'll show you two. 1 John 4, 10 says this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. That was the introduction. We don't love God. But that he loved us. Wait, who's the us? and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now this word propitiation is halosmos in the Greek, and it means atonement. Some translation actually say he is the sacrifice of atonement. That's how they translate propitiation. And here's what else it means. It means sin offering. It means sacrifice to atone. In other words, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Who is the us? Those whom the son propitiates or is the sacrifice of atonement for a very specific people. Those whose names are written in the book of life. When was that book written? Before the foundation of the world. Now, did you see that in in that text there? Now, look at this one. This is John in John chapter three. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now notice the whoever there is really a whoever. So from our perspective, friends, we need to tell anyone and everyone, if you believe in Jesus, if you cast yourself upon the mercies of God, you will be saved. The Philippian jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? What was his answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a promise. And so from our perspective, we tell anyone and everyone, if you will but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will give yourself over to him, confess your sins, ask for mercy, ask him to forgive you, he will forgive you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is the reward that Jesus won for us. Life everlasting in a new heavens and a new earth, remade, sin and curse, extracted, thrown away, gone, never to return. Now look at this though. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not believe, shall not see this life, this eternal life, but the wrath of God, what? Remains. Remains. Now look, here, Jesus loves us, the ones that are saved, by propitiation or by atonement. Here, it says those whom do not have propitiation or atonement, which is a satisfaction of the wrath of God, that wrath remains on them. Now friends, here is some really deep and scary application. Someone's gonna pay for your sin. Who's it gonna be? Are you gonna pay for all eternity? That's what hell is. Hell is you under the sentence of God's wrath 
for your sin, which is accumulating sin by sin by sin by sin by sin, all to be revealed on that great and terrible day called Judgment Day. And either you will pay the sentence, God is just, and so no one gets away with anything. If God lets sin slide, he's not just, he's not good, he's not holy. And so this is why Jesus had to die, to satisfy the justice of God, so that no one does get away with anything. So either you will pay for your sin, friends, or Jesus pays for your sin. Someone's gotta pay. And if Jesus pays, this is how God can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. God remains a just and holy, righteous and good God, and we get mercy, grace, forgiveness, and eternal life. But friends, if you stiff arm him, the wrath remains. And I love you enough to tell you this, I believe that this Bible is true in all of its sentences, in all of its words, in all of its chapters, in all of its books. I have devoted and committed my life to these words as reality. And so I believe this is true and therefore I must tell you the truth. God forbid that I not warn you to flee from the wrath to come. And this is in part why the Bible was written. Look, but God shows his love. You see, this is an act of love that God would send a substitute. God shows his love. He demonstrates it. You don't have to wonder, is God loving? Because he showed us he's loving already. How? In that while we were still sinners, when you were in your mess, when you were not seeking him, when you were not pleading with him for mercy, no, while you were in your sin, he came and died for you. Isn't that good news? Since, therefore, now this is, the therefore points back to all that we just talked about. Since therefore, we have now, we're presently justified, God declares you not guilty on the basis of Jesus' not guiltiness. He takes your guiltiness on the cross. Now that we've been justified by his blood, we have justification by the blood of Christ. He's the sacrifice of atonement. He's the propitiation for our sin. Much more. Now, this is what's called a much more argument. He lays out something that's amazing, and then he says, if this is true, then how much more this? How much more is this? Shall we be saved by him, Jesus, from the wrath of God? Paul's just cutting it straight with us. He says, if God came for you while you were at your worst and now you're actually united to him in his life, this is what Romans 6 is all about, union with Christ, if now you're united to him in this resurrection life, how much more will you be saved by the wrath of God that is coming on that great day and will last throughout eternity? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Let's pause there. Many of you who are neutral to Jesus, you, you just say, look, I, I'm, I'm neutral in all this. I have a white flag, and it's not a surrender flag. It's just a neutral flag, okay? I, I don't neither hate God, nor do I love him. This text says, if you're ungodly in verse six, if you're a sinner in verse eight, then verse 10, you're an enemy. There are no neutral people, friends. You're either at war with God or you've surrendered to him. And you say, that's, that's strong language. Have you read Philippians 2? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, ruler of all, to the glory of the Father. And not just everyone, it says everyone on the earth and under the earth. You say, what does that mean? The, the realm of the dead. Sheol, Hades, the great existence, the great afterlife for those who are not in Christ, awaiting judgment day. They're there right now. 
And they're waiting. They're on trial that hasn't happened yet. Some of you have been in prison. I was in junior prison, okay? I was one who was there. And what I was doing there was awaiting my court date. And then the day comes where you're shackled, at least I was, hands and feet, and I could move like this. Any of you remember that day? Kind of shuffle to court? And you stand before the judge who determines your fate. Now, because it was a first offense, for me, I got off very, very lightly. Non-braceleted house arrest, mandatory NAA meetings five times a week, mandatory rehab, P-tests, and the like. Okay, I've told my story a thousand times. But I sat in juvenile prison for two weeks waiting for the court date. Friends, Sheol is full of people right now waiting to see the judge. It's coming. It's sure to happen. Friends, you can be saved from the wrath of God that is coming. And verse 10 is so beautiful. Look, for if while we were enemies, see, this shows the goodness of God. While we were at war with him, he comes and makes peace with us. But note, if you're not at peace with God through Jesus, you're his enemy and you're at war with him. This is what Romans 8 is about. We'll get there, beginning of Romans 8. We're at enmity with God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, here's that much more argument. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And we'll get to that in just a second. But for now, let's just very quickly look at Doug Moo. Doug Moo's a Roman scholar, fantastic. Listen to this sentence. To reconcile means to bring together or make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. Now, as I said, most people do not think of themselves as hostile to God. They don't think of themselves as at war with God or an enemy of God, but this is the way that the Bible says it is. And the Bible gets to call reality, not us. And so what this means is we are reconciled to God. We're, we're two fractured, warring parties brought together. How? By the death of his son. Jesus reconciles us with the Father. We are at war with him. We are an enemy. And then friends, it's not just that we're okay with God. God goes so much further and says, my son, my daughter, whom I love. Jesus taught us Christians to pray, our Father in heaven. I mean, that's amazing. This is the, the doctrine of adoption. It's not just that we're okay with God now and he tolerates us, it's that you're my beloved daughter, my beloved son, that I sent my son to win. And so we're reconciled. Now, the saved by his life piece, and I do have about three minutes, so Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 says this. Hebrews is the great uh, letter to the Jewish people who were tempted to defect from Christ and go back to Judaism. And so here, uh, the writer of Hebrews, probably Paul, the, is, is, is um, talking about the former priesthood compared to Jesus, the ultimate priest. The former priests were many in number. You just read the Old Testament, priest after priest after priest after priest, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. One priest dies, another in the line of Aaron comes in. One priest dies, another comes in. And so there's massive amounts of priests because of death. But he, the he is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is, a, so in consequence of that, holding a priesthood forever, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is completely or at all times, those who draw near to God through him, gospel. Now look at this, since he always, always lives, we're united to his life, to make intercession for them. Now, you got to remember what the priests used to do. They would take the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would slaughter them, and it was for forgiveness. 
And the priest would represent the people before God. And so they would come and the people would confess their sins. And once a year, the great high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies where only that person, the high priest, could go once a year on the Day of Atonement, making sacrifice for his own sins. Then, cleansed by that sacrifice, could go in and make an atonement for the other people, for the rest of the Jewish people. And so here, this is the picture, friends. Jesus is the priest who is also the one who offers the sacrifice himself. And that sacrifice is ongoing for you and me. And this text, one more, Romans 8.34 says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died? More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes or is interceding for us. His sacrifice continues to be the witness to your forgiveness. Yes, he made the sacrifice, and then Hebrews 1 says he sat down at the right hand of God. He accomplished the work that he was sent to do. But that sacrifice continually cleanses you as you confess your sins. For God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess. In addition, there is a sense in which Jesus prays for us. Romans 8 says that the spirit who lives within us groans without words when we don't know how to pray or when we're weak because we don't know God's will in a situation. And then that prayer goes to Jesus and Jesus continually intercedes for us. There's this constant intercession as a priest in the Old Testament used to intercede for the people of God. Jesus, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, another Old Testament person, which is the context of this uh, Hebrews 7 chapter, he is always interceding, friends. And this is what this text is saying in verse 10. For if we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled uh, to God by his death. Much more, now that we are reconciled, brought together, shall we be saved by his life. He is alive right now. He is in heaven. He is metaphorically speaking at the right hand of God, which is the seat of power, and his sacrifice continues to represent our forgiveness. Someone should have just said amen. I was hoping Eddie would, but thank you, Eddie. I appreciate that. It was a non-called for response. It was totally organic. Thank you, Eddie. All right, verse 11, and we're done. More than that, he's just going, and more than that, and more, more than that, we also rejoice. Now we're rejoicing. We're happy. We're excited. In God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received a gift, received reconciliation. So we are reconciled to God, but then we get the commission of being reconciliation agents. Did you know that? Did you know that you as a Christian, this is where we're landing the plane, you are a reconciling agent on behalf of God with the gospel. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about yourself as on mission for the ruler of the universe on a reconcile mission? Who am I reconciling? Sinners under the wrath of God to God the Father himself. Now, I didn't make this up. And look, this is the last text, see? Fear not, the last one. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That be there, you could translate that creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, I'll explain. In Christ, God was reconciling, or God was in Christ reconciling, which is also true, the world to himself, all those who would believe, every tribe, nation, language, people, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the new creation of verse 17, we who are new creation, entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. What's the message of reconciliation? It's the gospel. It's the premise of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. This is what has been entrusted to you. How are you doing with it? 
Friends, if this is a real mission, which clearly it is, if you believe that 2 Corinthians is true and God's word, you have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are, that's identity language, you are ambassadors for Christ. If you're an ambassador from the United States to Ireland, what do you do? You represent the United States on foreign land. You are an ambassador from the kingdom of heaven in this foreign land, yes, this foreign land called the United States or wherever you find yourself on the globe. Philippians says, this is not your home. Your home is heaven and you are a citizen there. You are on visa here. You have a passport, and you're allowed to be here until God calls you home. And Paul says that would be far better. You remember that, right? To depart and be with Christ is far better. But for now, friends, you need to see yourself as an ambassador. You represent the king and that king's kingdom, and you are entrusted with the key that opens the door to that kingdom for people. It's called the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father or his kingdom, I added that, but through me. And so you're an ambassador of that kingdom and that king, and you have the message of reconciliation. Are you sitting on it? Are you hiding the light that we were told not to do? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. No, they put it on a stand for all to see. Who's a Christian? There's no Christians around here. Friends, are you hiding? You should not be. And God is merciful to forgive you and to come out of the darkness and to begin to shine for his glory and take up the banner of reconciler and ambassador and get to work. You have a mission. You're not just supposed to get all you can while you're here. You go around more than once. You will go around twice forever. And you're an ambassador for this great gospel and this great king. For our, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Come to Christ, be reconciled. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's exercising his ambassadorial identity. For our sake, Christians, he, God, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him, us united to him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is justification. We are righteous in Christ. He takes our sin on the cross. This is the good news, friends, and it's been given to you as a trust. Will you share it? Will you give it to other people and implore them, as Paul just did, to you by way of 2 Corinthians, be reconciled to God? And so we're landing on this right now. Friends, we're gonna celebrate the symbol of our reconciliation. It's the blood spilled on the cross and the body broken of Jesus. And every week at Eternal City, we celebrate that by taking communion and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and remembering his sacrifice. It's an act of worship, but it's also a great remembrance for you, a reminder for you of what this is all about.